We are finally nearing the end of our James series. You can be turning to James 5 if you have a Bible. But barring any profound discoveries in one of the next two verses, I have every intention of finishing our series on James next week. But we do have a lot to cover today. So, without any further preface, I invite you to stand in honor of hearing the Word of God. You're able to stand as we read James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. James writes, Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they should pray over him after anointing him with olive oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will restore him to health. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, so that you may be healed. The urgent request of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, yet he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, I pray with David that out of your righteousness and mercy that you would speak to us today. I pray that uh, it is your voice alone that speaks, that all the efforts and study that I put in have been laid at your table and that you would take and use whatever you wish to bring about a stronger and a more faithful love and obedience from your followers. And that you would speak to us concerning the reasons we do pray. And I pray that if anybody has bad feelings or misunderstandings about prayer, that you would nourish their soul today. If you are able, please recite the Lord's Prayer with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us us trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray at all times in the Spirit, and with every prayer and request, and stay alert in this with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Devote yourselves to prayer, stay alert in it with thanksgiving. Pray constantly, or pray without ceasing. We get the picture, biblically speaking, that prayer is to be an everyday, all-the-time sort of thing. And James, illustratively 
states here in James 5.13, Is anyone among you suffering, he should pray. Is anyone cheerful, he should sing praises. Now, James, I believe, is speaking both figuratively and literally. Figurative, in that James has used extremes. He's used suffering, feeling very low, and cheerful, feeling very high. And thus the idea is anything and everything in between, one should be praying. The remainder of this section then in James 5, James moves through the many times as to when to pray, whether it be suffering, times of cheer, or illness, or confessing sin, and finally what believers can expect when they pray. When one is suffering, this is indeed... I've told you from time to time as we go through the book of James that James continues to come back to themes. This is going back to James, actually chapter 1, I believe, when one is suffering. James states in James 1, verses 2 through 5, he says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers, when you experience various trials, suffering, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. But endurance must do its complete work, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, if any one of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. So, are you suffering? Pray. Do you lack wisdom wisdom in overcoming your trials, your suffering? Ask God. Pray. The suffering here in James 5 is more literally to suffer evil. So this could be hardships, emotional, physical, spiritual, suffering, physical illnesses. It's the same word used back in James 5.10, in which James referred to the Old Testament prophets. He says, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as example of suffering and patience. Are you suffering? You should pray. I love the the terseness of that, because how many of us, when suffering comes, praying is a later idea. If I could channel my inner John Candle, I love what he said, all prayer, it's come to that. <laughs> how many of it, how, for how many of us is it, am I suffering? I should find something to drink. <laughs> I should find something to eat. I should find something to watch and distract me. I should find something to do, anything to avoid suffering. But when we're told to pray, we're told to vocalize it, we're told to confront it. We're told to not ignore it or escape it, but to give it up to God. You hear that? About a month ago, I was in a rotten mood, and I'm I'm glad to have spiritual confidants. And I still have the text I sent to two of my confidants, one of them being Dean, and I said, I'm asking for, for prayers. I've been in a rotten mood lately, and that's not good. You know, I had feelings of bitterness, resentment, impatience, and complacent. And, and I confess that I, I walked around in that mood for some time before the bright idea came to my head, maybe I, maybe I should pray about this. <laughs> Ask others to pray for me. Some of those moods were, were probably sinful, so in a way it was also a, a way of doing what James tells us later in this passage, and that is to confess our sins to one another. But I talked about this with two confidants one day, and then 
the next day at the pastor's meeting uh, that we have in town. And so, after having so many people pray with me and about me, those feelings began to dissipate. Are you suffering today? You should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. I've observed myself and many other people, especially for me, it was in my teenage years, I developed this huge affinity for music. <laughs> Some people still have this huge affinity. I've personally come to a place where I don't listen to his music as much as I used to. But I do believe there's something about music, and maybe you feel it every Sunday, that stirs hearts like nothing else can. I'm reminded of the effect of music on the heart of King Saul. In 1 Samuel 16, 23, we read, Whenever the Spirit from God troubled Saul, David would pick up his lyre and play. And Saul would then be relieved and feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. Hmm. Seems like a profound effect. Around the time I was a freshman in high school, I was only five years ago, just kidding, <laughs> 14 years ago, I started going through uh, a depression, and I started listening to a lot of hard rock music, a lot of screaming songs, a lot of ballads from many of these bands claimed to be Christian. You know what that did for me? Made me feel worse. Then, as I got older, I started coming across many bands that had like anthems and pump-ups and just more cheerful sounding songs, and it began to enthuse me after I listened to them. I think the Bible makes clear, though, especially the Psalms make clear, that there are times for lamenting, and some songs will express that emotion in good ways. But to go along with what James says here, if you're cheerful, sing praises. Many Psalms speak to this, but let's consider Psalm 5. If Psalm 5 is a psalm of lament, where David opens up with worry and complaint, but like many Psalms, he ends on a high note with these words in Psalm 5, verse 11. He says, But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For the believer who is finding cheer, let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they should pray over him, after anointing him with olive oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will restore him to health. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. I can take a, a quick deviation from my notes. Um, Dean did a great study on this in our study guides, so if you haven't read it, I would point you to it. And the reason I say that is I was reading Dean's study after I went through my sermon, and we went completely different directions. We're covering the same stuff, but uh, there's a lot of material you will pick up in there and you will find really helpful in understanding this passage. But we went through the book of Mark a while ago, and we finished it about this time last year, actually. And throughout the book of Mark, and throughout any gospel account, we pick up the idea and note that, hey, Jesus is healing people. Uh, sick people, Peter's mother-in-law is healed, demonically possessed people, people with skin conditions like leprosy, people who are crippled, just all sorts of healing going on. 
And there's one passage in Mark that kind of mirrors the progression that James is using here. Uh, the other gospel accounts record this too, but since we're talking about Mark, I invite you to head over to Mark 2 in your Bibles if you want to. I'll have it up here as well. But Mark 2. I want to set the stage for you. It's near the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and his fame is taking off. People are talking about it. The proverbial news outlets are talking about this Jesus of Nazareth, so much so that in his hometown, at his house, Jesus is preaching. It's probably not even Sabbath. It's not in a synagogue, but his house. Kind of impromptu preaching service happens, and the house is packed. So packed that the overflow is bleeding out into the streets. Now, not only, not, what news is not only spreading of his preaching, but also of his healing. And there is this paralytic and four crazy caring friends who want Jesus to heal this paralytic. But between these five guys and Jesus is this huge crowd. Again, bleeding out into the streets. Doorways full, Jesus is preaching, I'm going to imagine hot, stuffy, no path. So what happens? It's so amazing, you've got to see it for yourself. Mark 2, beginning in verse 4, says, Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus, and because of the crowd, they removed the roof above where he was. And when they had broken through, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. That sounds devoted. How's roofs in that? Cultural contexts were probably flat, made of wooden slabs, probably mud and thatch. You were able to remove it fairly easily, so I don't want you to think that four people are on top of Jesus' house with a chainsaw, carving out a big you know, spot for the man to be lowered. Even so, here are four guys who either scaled a wooden ladder or possibly an outside stairwell to the roof with a paralytic on a stretcher. You see their determination. They interrupt Jesus' preaching. The anticipation is building. Now bear with me for a moment. I'm bringing this home for you emotionally. Imagine this paralytic is you. Right? Suppose Jesus is next door at my house. Everyone shows up, crowds of people, and, and I'll just speak for myself whenever I say, apparently I must doubt at times that the Holy Spirit resides within me because the thought of having Christ physically in the flesh, visibly for me, sometimes I might be a little bit more serious about bringing my prayers and requests and petitions to him. Does anybody identify that? What is the one request that you want answered? What is the one problem you really want to talk to Jesus about and hear back about? I already know for some of you, at least I think it do, maybe it involves a family member in their sin. If, if you could just get that straightened out, if you could just have Jesus here and now in front of you, if you could just have that discussed and resolved, maybe it's money for some of you. Maybe it's like the paralytic and there's this ongoing pain and illness. Whatever it is. You break through the house next door, Jesus is preaching, you break through the crowd and you're front and center. Jesus has your attention for the paralytic once he's lowered and in sight of Jesus. The need is obvious. <laughs> for you, perhaps you vocalize it and now you're awaiting a response. What's it going to be? What's Jesus going to say? Look at what Jesus says to the paralytic. Seeing their faith, 
That is the faith of the friends in this paralytic. Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. This isn't a trick phrase. (laughs) Jesus did not heal the paralytic right here. Jesus did not heal the paralytic right here. Why did Jesus say this? What did Jesus do there? What is the paralytic thinking? Again, bring this home for you. Jesus, my family members in such a predicament have been praying day and night. What do you got for me? Your sins are forgiven. Jesus, my back has been out in so much pain for some. Jesus, this illness has taken a toll on me. Jesus, this bill is weighing over me. Your sins are forgiven. Is this a bit of a letdown? The paralytic is still paralyzed. The four guys on top of the roof are going, You're kidding me! I'm going to be sore tomorrow trying to get this guy up here, and after all this, he's still going to be paralyzed. Do you feel the anxiety, the panic? We've wanted Jesus to heal, but he just forgave sins. We'll come back to Mark, but it's interesting to me here in James, verses 15 through 16 of chapter 5. He says, The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will restore him to health. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. It's interesting that like Jesus before him, James has made a connection between physical healing and the importance of forgiving sins. I want to look at what James might mean by, quote, the prayer of faith. What is the prayer of faith? Is it an ancient recited prayer? An ancient superstitious set of words say these magical words, and James says it will, quote, will save the sick person. (laughs) Furthermore, and the Lord will restore him to health. I couldn't help but think a lot of Lori's father, Cliff Harris. In response to this very passage, he, he called together our church and wanting to elders come and pray over him, and so we did, and so what happened? He passed away. But the prayer of faith, says James, will save the sick person, and the Lord will restore him to health. What if the prayer of faith is not a prayer that simply does not doubt what it's asking for, but if it's a prayer that believes in and yields to the sovereignty of God? It's a prayer that believes God is God no matter what. It describes the person who comes to God as a child of God and says, no matter the outcome, I'm praying to God because I want to bring this concern to him because I know he exists. And I trust that he loves me. Because I trust he's a good dad who gives good gifts, who wants the best for his kids, and I'm one of his kids. Do you hear that? No strings attached. No, I'm scratching his back, so he better scratch mine. Because for those of us who had good, loving, earthly fathers, we never did life with him like that. So it is with our Heavenly Father. The prayer of faith is the prayer of a believer who has an established relationship with him. And if that's the case, what's this last phrase talking about? The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will restore him to health. Dean already mentioned a a slight dissatisfaction with the Holman Christian Standard Bible today, so I'll just tack on 
I started, I wanted to use the ESV today, but I thought either way I'm going to explain while I'm switching Bibles. So I do intend to use, use the ESV in the future again. But the first part of James 5.15 in the ESV says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Now that's very different. The translators at the Holman Christian probably said, nobody speaks like that, the Lord will raise him up. So to get the thought across, it's, and the Lord will restore him to health. And I appreciate the ESV's literal approach because we look in the world and we say the prayer of faith sometimes does not restore a person to health like we think it should. Sometimes they die. But James was literally saying the Lord will raise him up. And you and I know that for the believer, they are raised again, maybe not in this life, but the next. Does that make sense? Furthermore, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick or the sick person. What if saved here has salvation in mind? Maybe not always necessarily physical healing in mind. The word save is the exact same word in the Bible that refers to salvation, saved. In Matthew chapter 1, when uh, the angel is speaking to Joseph and that the child is conceived by the Holy Spirit, Joseph is to quote, name him Jesus because he will save, same word, his people from their sins. Exact same word as save the one who is sick. So to put it all together, James says, the prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So again, it's interesting that James puts these two concepts together, physical healing and forgiveness of sin. It moves us back to the story of Jesus and Mark. You remember the cliffhanger. If you didn't, you really should get checked for memory loss. <laughs> Where we left off, the, the paralytic has lowered Mark chapter 2, verses 5 through 12 says, Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes who know how to make anything, oh, that's not in the... <laughs> some of the scribes who were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus understood in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, pick up your mat, and walk? But so you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, pick up your mat, and go home. Immediately, he got up, picked up the mat, went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. The point... Being paralyzed and then healed and able to walk is one thing. Having your sins forgiven is much bigger, a much more profound healing, profound restoration of the soul than even physical healing. We live in a visible world and are oohed and awed by visibly attested to miracles, but Jesus is revealing the miracle of sins forgiven. James is putting these two things together, physical healing and forgiveness of sin, I think for two reasons. Firstly, physical healing is something that God does for people out of his love and grace for believers and sometimes out of his desire to bring people to saving faith in him through miracles. Secondly, 
James tacks on the importance of forgiveness of sin with this because like Jesus, James wants to remind hearers that our Lord and Savior is most concerned with our sins than over our ailments. And at the end of the day, what can completely destroy your soul is not your physical illness, but your spiritual sickness of sin. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. I think most of us come from a Protestant background that still in response to the Catholics we broke away from over 500 years ago, get, a, get over it, <laughs> this is something that many do not value, practice, or often enough, confession of sin. I'm not going to set up a confessional booth, amen, and I'm certainly happy that I'm not everyone's priest to hear everyone's sin. And I wholeheartedly believe that the only mediator between you and God is Christ Jesus. But James encourages the believers to confess sins to one another. So when you say, oh, Jesus is my mediator and he's my personal priest and I'll just confess him to him. You are in disobedience to this scripture right here. Confess your sins to one another. Let me say that again. When you say, oh, Jesus is my mediator and he's my personal priest and I'll just confess sin to him, you are in disobedience to this scripture right here. Confess your sins to one another. I wonder how many of us are in the middle of a big problem. Sin, it's vicious, it's never-ending, we don't see a way out, it's keeping us down, it seems hopeless. and We're looking for peace and restoration and escape and deliverance. And the thing about Jesus, always the thing about Jesus is the unbelievable truth that what seems to be the most hardest will be the most liberating. If everyone did know, if I did confess my sins, if I were honest about the dark things I've done, if I were open with my sin, the amazing, unbelievable truth is the freedom that you would feel. Because the guilt would be removed, the ball would be in the court of a merciful judge named Jesus who takes your sin and cleanses you from unrighteousness. John writes in 1 John 1 verses 5 through 10, God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him, yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus' his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we don't have any sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. You, I believe, you cannot have cleansing from your sins. You cannot have the freedom of being in the light, being transparent, until you cross the hurdle of confessing sin. Because after you confess your sins to one another, then we are commanded to pray for one another so that you may be healed. You need to hear this because I sincerely pray that if anyone in the room is struggling with a secret sin, and if you're not finding healing but you feel convicted today, and by all means it is my sincere hope and prayer that you would pull someone aside 
I'll, I'll be the person you pull aside if you need me. But summon, pull aside someone you trust, someone in here or maybe in another church, some friend who attends another body of Christ. But if you pull aside anyone in here, if you're that person being pulled aside, here's what James says, pray for one another. We talked about in James a while ago, let's not judge. <laughs> There's only one judge. But as Jesus receives sinners, so we too should receive sinners and pray for one another. The urgent request of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, yet he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the land. But then he prayed again, the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. This very passage right here was heavy on my heart, one memorable season in August of 2015. Fire was taking over the hill, and my faith was being tested concerning this passage. If I really believe that prayer works, if I really believe that God hears righteous people, and if I really believe that I'm righteous through Jesus alone, then why does he not hear me? Or why does he say no when we pray for rain and rain doesn't come? How about the times we pray for healing and healing doesn't come? I think it is this very fact right here that James ends verse 16 by saying the urgent request of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Because if people were always healed 100% of the time, why would James reassure his hearers with these words? <laughs> it would seem to be, well, duh. <laughs> what if, what if the effect of our prayers, especially the prayers we think are not answered in the ways we want them to be, what if their effect is powerful, just not in ways that we expected them to be? What if God heard our prayers to bring rain and to end the fires and to protect the firefighters? And what if the effect was was powerful in that God said, I'm not doing what you want me to do, but since I am invited into this catastrophe by my people, I'm going to move. And he did move, and he brought the community together, and the hill was spared. I remember Cliff Harris, Lori's dad, who I mentioned before, called us together for all of us who prayed over him. It was a special moment. The entire family was gathered and witnessed something that maybe they haven't witnessed before or since. Dean did a great job of presenting the truth that the power is not in the elders, the power is not in the prayer or the oil, but the power is in God and God alone who heals. And that if it is God's will to heal this illness, he will heal, but even if he doesn't, he's still in charge. And when things don't go our way, and when prayers aren't answered the way we want them answered, we need to be reminded of these truths. God is in control, and our prayers matter. God is in control, and our prayers matter. Again, you might say, but it didn't go my way. I don't know if you've noticed, but Calvin's starting to talk a little bit. And there are times when he points to the fridge, and he was saying it earlier, actually, while we were reading the psalm, he wants M-I-L-K. <laughs> and he tells me so, and he even says, please, and he even rubs his tummy, please. And so I give it to him. Then there are other times he does the exact same routine, but because I don't want to give him the 47th cup of milk for the day, I say no. You know what that means? It means his petitions are heard, they're still very effective, and they're still even desired on my part. It's just that sometimes the answer is no. 
That's how it is with God. God hears every prayer. You need to hear that. He hears every prayer. And if you have a true relationship with him, you need to know that his relationship with you is not a superstitious one. God does not have a faith gauge. And if you're ever above the right marker, he starts giving you goodies. (laughs) That's not his relationship with you. He's your dad who knows when to give M-I-L-K and when not to. He's your dad who sees all and, and knows what you don't. He sees what you cannot see. Sometimes he might explain to you what he can see, and other times maybe he's just looking for trust in him. A quick caveat. The only time the Bible speaks of God, quote, not hearing prayers, is when we're in rebellion against him. And I say, quote, because it's not like we flipped a switch and God suddenly doesn't have that ability to hear prayers and is suddenly deaf. It's more like, I hear what you're saying and I'm not listening because you're not serious right now. (laughs) Your lips say one thing, your heart says another. You cannot fool me. I want you to hear the following verses, but I don't want you to get superstitious and frantic on me. Isaiah 1.15 says, When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Proverbs 28, verse 9 says, Anyone who turns his ear away from hearing the law, even his prayer is detestable. So what I mean by superstitious and frantic is that it is very good to check our hearts. And if we find things to repent of, repent of them. I'm not minimizing the gravity of these verses. Obey them. But don't ever think you have levers to pull, buttons to press, and a maze to run through to find the correct cheese in order to make God suddenly listen to you. For the repentant, for the Christian, for the believer in God and the right-hearted, God is listening. When God doesn't listen, it's because we have a heart that doesn't really want to follow him to begin with. And if you know yourself, and if you ask God, reveal this to me, he will reveal it to you. And you need to repent, so repent. Does that make sense? Elijah is a man just like us. It means he sinned like us. It means he asked questions like us. It means he worshipped God like us, he had a relationship with God like us, and he prayed that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain. And he prayed that it would rain, and it did rain. The point is that Elijah has nothing on us. God is still answering prayers. God is in control, so friends, pray knowing it matters. Does that make sense? Pray when you're suffering. Sing praises to him when you're cheerful. Ask for healing, knowing he's able and willing Ask for forgiveness and pray for one another. And know that for those in Christ Jesus, prayer is effective. Heavenly Father, uh, sometimes it seems like the message you lay on my heart is something I'm always dealing with. It's amazing how you do that. But Father, if there's anything we learn from this passage is that this prayer is that prayer matters. That even though we trust you are in control of all things, that you know all and see all, that you've desired a very intimate relationship with us that is about communication between us and you. And so we pray that you would help us to be diligent in our prayers, to not be afraid to come before you, but to trust the promise of Hebrews that we can boldly approach you from. To know that you already see our sin before we confess it, and you love us still. It doesn't mean we should confess it. Of course we should. 
to trust that even though you may not always heal, you do heal, and you will heal. And also to know that whenever we are cheerful, as James tells us, every good gift comes from you. So we thank you for that. So Father, we pray as we are dismissed today that nobody would leave with the idea of ignoring what you're telling them here today. But rather you would allow that conviction to take fruit and produce precious fruit of the gospel of righteousness, peace, and repentance.